Okay. Good morning. It's good to see everyone. In this uh, coming week's parasha, after Yaakov Vinu dies, he makes Yosef take a shvua that he was going to bring him, not to bury him in Mitzrayim when he dies, but rather to bring him back to Eretz Yisrael to be buried with his parents in Maris Pela. The Pesach says over here, Simna do me this kindness of truth not to bury me in Mitzrayim. Rather, bury me with my parents. Transport me out of Mitzrayim and bring me back to Israel to be buried with my parents in Marzah Machpelah. Rashi there explains that there were three reasons why he preferred to be buried in Eretz Israel. One is because the land of Mitzrayim was going to um, ultimately become infested with vermin. Saifa Lios Afrakinim. Also, um, because he was afraid that in Mitzrayim they would turn him into a deity. Um, you know, his legend, and the second reason that Rashi cites is because um, at the time of Mesim, all of the Mesim that are in Chutzlars are going to have to roll, the bones will roll, and there's a Tsar that's involved in that process, and Yaakov Avinu wanted to prevent or save himself from that Tsar, and he has therefore to be buried preemptively in Eretz Yisrael. The Gemara Mesech, the Ksubis, presents another reason to be buried, why it's preferable to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. It's because there's a kapara that's achieved. The Gemara says, buried in Eretz Yisrael. It's as if a person is buried underneath the Mizbeach. In what sense is it connected to the Mizbeach? So the Gemara there quotes from the Pasuk in Parashas Hazino V'chiper Ad Masai Amai. That the uh, land itself serves as, a, serves as a kind of kapara after a person uh, has passed, uh, passed away. We've discussed in the past, uh, a few years ago, um, maybe a bunch of years ago already at this point, uh, the mildness of being buried in Eretz Yisrael. Should Mason be sent from Chutzaris to Eretz Yisrael? That's something that you know, we should endorse, or is that something that's only meant for those who choose to do so? So the whole Shia discussing the mildness of being buried in Eretz Yisrael, that's certainly well known. Um, but Yaakov did ask for his body to be transported from Chutzaris from Mitzrayim to Eretz Yisrael. Following in his footsteps, Yosef, who's buried at the end of this week's parasha in Aron, by Yisam Baron in Mitzrayim, also makes his children take a similar shvua. We don't find out about it in this week's parasha, in this coming week's parasha. We find, only, uh, find out about it only later on in parasha's Bashalach, where Moshe Rabbeinu says that he has to take, when they're going to leave, he has to take the bones of Yosef with him. Yosef asks also that his bones should be taken out of Mitzrayim and uh, be taken to Eretz Yisrael, just like was done at the time of Yaakov Avinu. However, here, they didn't transport him and bury him for the first time in Eretz Yisrael, like happened by Yaakov Avinu, because he felt that his, you know, he had political clout at the time of Yaakov Avinu's death, and he was able to arrange, and even that was difficult, he was able to arrange, you know, with some opposition from Paro, he was able to arrange um, Yaakov Avinu's funeral in Eretz Yisrael, but his own funeral, you know, when they would lose that kind of uh, political capital, he was afraid his children wouldn't be able to do it, so he told them, you know, leave me here, but when you leave, make sure to take you, you know, to take me, to take me with you. And that's the first time we see a uh, disinterment, a reinterment, a pinoy kvarim uh, taking one body from being that was buried in one place um, and then bringing it, uh, you know, to a different place to be buried. And obviously here the same milos, the, the same uh, interest that Yahvino had, presumably carried over to Yosef, number one, to be buried together with his parents um, in Eretz Yisrael because of all the milos that are involved. So I wanted to take the opportunity, since it first appears in this week's parasha, if you put it together with what we learn in parasha B'Shalach, I want to take the opportunity to reflect for a few moments on this idea of moving kvaris, uh, moving, uh, moving uh, graves, um, or is it perhaps even entire cemeteries from one place to another. What is the justification for that? And what are some of the implications of, uh, of doing so? So is that allowed? In general, is a person allowed? So we find Yosef, you know, a kind of a pretty good precedent that one is allowed under certain circumstances to move 
I came from one place to the other. But certainly, it's not something we, you know, we, 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 uh, we, 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 you know, we would do willy nilly. It's certainly not something we would take on, you know, to do for no reason. There might be justifications, but generally speaking, our posture should be not to do it. So that's what the Yishalmi tells us, huh? Yeah, they did. They buried them a lot of times in one place and then moved them to another place. Yes. Well, it, like it, was done it was done routinely. So what are the justifications for it? When can it be done? Well, you know, what is, uh, it was done more routinely than it is today, and there were different reasons for, for that. But, but, you know, let's just see what, you know, what the reasons are that, that can justify that practice. So Yishami says over here, You can't move. Um, a mace or bones from one kever to another kever, even if they're both honorable um, kvarim, um, certainly, or certainly, if, you know, they're dishonorable, if it's a dishonorable to a dishonorable, but even if it's from a dishonorable kever to an honorable kever, certainly from an honorable kever to a dishonorable kever, um, that's not something that should be done. Unless, Yushalmi continues, if it is in order to be buried together with kever avaisav, as Yaakov Avinu says, to be better together with Kevra Avaisav, then it is allowed. And the Yushalmi explains, um, It's pleasant for a person, it's preferable for a person to be buried together with Kevra Avaisav. So we have in the Yushalmi one, except it sounds like generally we should not be moving Mason, you know, back and forth. That's only preferable. But if, uh, you know, it can be uh, allowed under what circumstances, Yishalmi gives one exception, if it's to be buried at Kever Ovis, which is based on the precedent of Yaakov Avinu and Yosef, that Bishochav Tiyam Avaisai. The Shulchan Aruch in Hilchus Avelos quotes the name of the Rishayim that add other, uh, perhaps, circumstances where this can be allowed. Um, if it's not only to be buried at Kever Ovis, but even to be buried in Eretz Yisrael, as you see again from the precedent of Yaakov and Yosef, that it's permitted to move Mesim, you know, to delay the burial in order to bury them in Eretz Yisrael, but even if it's already buried, to exhume the body, and then to move it to Eretz Yisrael, you see from Yosef that that is allowed. Or the Yishalmi here, uh, the Shulchan Aruch here, adds in the name of the Rishonim. If you made a condition, the person was buried Al Hatunai that they plan to move him. This is only a temporary burial spot, but they plan to move him subsequently to some other place. Um, or if this kever is um, in danger of being um, disgraced or overrun by non-Jews, over here on the second line it says. Uh, the end of the second line of voice, hey, if they plan, I'm buried him here, having a mind to move him subsequently, then it's allowed. If it's not, um, if it's not protected, uh, that the person will exhume the body or, da- or, or, or disgrace it in some way, or she comes to or water will enter into it, which sometimes happens here in the United States. There are certain places where you know the, the water is a potential problem. Um, so then you are allowed to move the body. The Shulchan Aruch adds in the next if one uh, additional condition, and that is if a person was mitzvah them to uh, bury him somewhere else. Normally, the Shulchan Aruch says we bury a person where he died. We bury a person where he died. Why? Because we don't like delaying burials. The Pasuk says in Parashat, you should bury the person as quickly, you know, the mitzvah of Kura, and you should bury the person as quickly as possible, not to de- delay the burial. Um, for a whole bunch of reasons. There's Isra Havanas Hames, a mitzvah of Kvura, once a person dies, and there's an Isra of uh, Nivu Hames, and delaying the burial, the person, you know, it begins to decompose, and there's some disgrace that's involved. So be- best to bury the person immediately in the place where they died, unless the person was mitzvah, that they be buried somewhere else. If the person, you know, asked to be buried somewhere else, then you have the right to delay the burial in order to transport them to that other place to be buried. And even if, let's say, some mistake was made, no one knew about the Sivoy, and they buried him where he died, and then it's, uh, you know, it's revealed that the person, you know, 
know, intended to be buried somewhere else, then it says in Shofan Aruch, you would have the right to exhume the body in order to move them to the place where they asked uh, to be buried. So we'll get involved in all the particulars of these exceptions uh, in a minute, but what is the problem? What's wrong, necessarily, with moving the mason? Why is that our, you know, there are exceptions to the rule where, you know, where it, where it is allowed to be buried with kever, obviously, buried in Eretz Yisrael, if it was done on tonight, if it's a kever sheinu mishtamer, you know, the person, you know, requests to be buried somewhere else, but, but, you know, why, what, what's the problem here? Why not just move mason uh, gratuitously back and forth? What's, uh, you know, what's wrong here? So the shach explains the name of the kobo, side by the Beis over here in the brackets of Isai, hatam sha bilbo kashul mason. It's because the confusion is difficult for the Mason. They're afraid of a Yom Hadin. They think when they're being exhumed that there's somehow a Yom Hadin that's taking place. And therefore they get nervous and you're bothering them for no reason because it's not a Yom Hadin. You're just moving the Mason from one place to the other and you're disturbing their you know, peace for no reason. The, I ask a question. The, the, the bones have no significance. The Nefesh is gone. The Shama's so, gone. Yeah. Why are they sort of person, you know, personalizing... That the bones we're very careful about covered amaze. It's a tell them as the Pasuk says, Ki kill Lasa, the Kim Taloi. My understanding from Rama is that just it's a container of, of, of the Nefesh. And, right. You know, it's so important to keep it. But the very fact that it was such a container for so long, let's say a person has a mantle for a Sefer Torah, right? So then uh, after the Sefer Torah is no longer usable, so the Sefer Torah, you know, um, retains some Kedusha, right? But even the mantle, uh, which you used for the Sefer Torah, was Tashmishe Kedusha. It was used for Kedusha while it was usable. So even after a person passes away, the body was Tashmishe Kedusha. It was used for Kedusha while it was alive and therefore retains some extra Kedusha and needs Geniza, just like uh, an Aaron Kedush. The bones have feelings or something. Well, there is, it sounds like that there is some presence that the Neshama remains somewhere around the bones and there is still some sort of residual connection. We'd have to explore that more. It's probably more of a Kabbalistic concept than, you know, a a halachic concept necessarily, but it does dribble over, you know, and seeps over into the halachic side of it that we have to be concerned for that, I guess, right, residual halo that exists around, uh, around the bones. What Shem is observing the body. Uh, oh, so we'll get to in a second. So we'll get to in a second. Yeah. What's with uh, a secondary Yom Din? Oh, we'll get to your point in one second. Give me a second, okay? So the Shachov, he quotes the name of the Kobo, we're afraid that they're disturbing the peace of the mace, and he's going to think that now all of a sudden there's a Yom Hadin that's taking place. The Kobo cites the Pasuk and say for Eod, Yoshanti, I think it is over here, Yoshanti Oz Noyachli. I was sleeping, let me be. And, you know, and all of a sudden you're disturbing the mace, so the Pasuk can say for Shmuel, um, it comes up in that context, Lame Hergazdi Lalois. Why did you disturb me to wake me up? You know, by moving the bones um, from place to place. It's for that reason that if we made a tanai when the first person, the first time the person was buried, we made a condition, so then it is permitted. Why? Why aren't we afraid for this bilbo, for the confusion that's going to take place with the mason? All of a sudden, he's going to get afraid that there's another Yom Adin that's coming. The answer is because we told him when we buried him that we're going to move you later on. And then he says, oh, this is, must be just removing and it's not another Yom Adin. One minute. We made a tanai when we buried him after he was dead already. So how does he know if he was Mitzvah buried me here and then, you know, later on to move me, then I understand. But uh, how does he know what we stipulated at the time that we buried him after he passed away already? So the Tazia cites him to Yushalmi, um, over here, Oizvav, that it's because we have, it's actually a Gemara Masech to Shabbos as well, that the Hameis Yoidea Vishemei, over here, Oizvav, Hameis Yoidea Vishemei Kiluso, Kimitoi Chaloim, until the person is buried, and according to one version of the Gemara Masech to Shabbos, until there's Iko Abosar, meaning until there's uh, all of the, the flesh has decomposed, 
the person can continue to hear what people are saying about them. It's not like they're awake anymore. It's like a person hears something or recalls something from a dream. So too, the neshama can hear what's taking place in the proximity of the body, until the person is buried. So until the person is buried, the person is aware of that which we're saying around them. That's why it's, you know, that's why it's always preferable to have spayed them in front of the niftar. But even if they're not actually there, the Ushami seems to say like they can know what's happening even if they're not present. It's not in their, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the room with the maze. Nonetheless, they hear what's taking place. And if a tonight was stipulated when they were buried that they're going to be moved, then they were aware of that and there isn't that same kind of tiru, uh, that same kind of bilbo that occurs uh, by, by moving the mason. What yom adin are we talking about, though? What yom adin are we talking about? So there's actually two yom adin that a mace goes through. That's explained over here by Tyson the Sechus Rosh Hashanah. The Ramban has the same thing in his Teres HaAdam, which is the basis for a lot of Shulchan Aruch Nechus is quoted in every page, every sif. In Shulchan Aruch Nechus so a lot of it comes in the Ramban and Teres HaAdam. They both explain that there's two yom adin. There's one yom adin when a person passes away immediately, um, after may have asked him Shana, and uh, that, at that point the determination is made whether they'll go to Gan Eden or to Loyalein or to Gehenim. Even if a person is uh, sentenced to Gehenim, that sentence only lasts for a period of 12 months. Even the worst Russia doesn't stay in Gehenim for more than 12 months. We presume when a person passes away, he wasn't Betachlis Arishos, he wasn't the worst kind of a Russia, and that's why the custom is that children only, the sons only continue to say Kaddish for 11 months. Because they figured the parent was, you know, might have had faults, no one's perfect, but they weren't going to, you know, that, that bad that they need Kaddish for all 12 months. If you know a person was a Russia, you know, so then perhaps it is appropriate to say Kaddish for all 12 months, but that's not the general, you know, that's not what we generally, that's not what we generally do. The person doesn't last there for more than 12 months. That's the first Yom Adin. Then there's a second Yom Adin. The, after the coming of Mashiach, there'll be a Tchiyas HaMesim, and then there'll be another Yom Adin. That's what the Pesach of Malachi is describing. That great and awesome day is going to be the day of the second Yom Adin, where well, determination will be made. Uh, I'm not sure what the, you know, what the discovery is in that Yom Adin that was different than the discovery in the first Yom Adin, but then the determination will be made whether a person will be Zaycha Ta'ilam Abba, or a person is not Zaycha Ta'ilam Abba. The first way station is Gan Eden and Gehenim, and then afterwards a person makes it into Ilam Abba, but there is a second Yom Adin. Which Yom Adin are we talking about here that this person is afraid when we disturb the bones, disturb the body that he is, you know, is, is being subject to? So there are those that say he's referring to the first Yom Adin. The Tiferes Yisrael over here, Oistah, says that this uh, prohibition of moving the body because there's Bilbo and there's a fear that he's going to you know, and, uh, undergo a Yom Adin only applies during the first 12 months after the person has been buried. Because then there's still like this uh, you know, fear that, oh no, they're coming back for me a second time. You know, after that, it's still within uh, the sentencing phase of that uh, first Yom Adin. So the person is afraid, oh no, they're bringing me back to, uh, you know, to, to, to reassess the judgment. You know, maybe there was an appeal or something. But, it, you know, that's only during the first 12 months. So therefore, the first Israel says this whole problem, the whole issue only exists within the first 12 months. The Neid Yehuda goes within, this, you know, the same law. It's not as extreme as the first Israel. The Neid Yehuda claims it's only, this only applies as long as the body has not decomposed. Once it is, you know, skeletonized, once the, you know, the body is all decomposed and it's only bones that are left, so then the Neid Yehuda says a person's not afraid of the first Yom Adin anymore. What else are they going to do to him? You know, that's already in, in the rearview mirror and there's nothing anymore to be afraid of. And therefore, the Neid Yehuda is willing to be Mako that uh, after the Basel, after Ikoa Basel, you can, you can move the body um, without all of the stipulations and conditions that, uh, that we mentioned. What happens after the first 12 months to the second Yom Adin? 
Oh, where where is the body? Everybody seems to make it to Gan Eden. It's a good question. We obviously have no idea. But the Rishonim speculate that you end up, everyone makes it to Gan Eden at some point. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. No. No. That's the opinion of Roy Harishonim. That's the Ramban, and most Rishonim go in that direction. The Rambam makes no mention of Gan Eden or Gehenna. And everyone kills the Rambam. Everyone, you feel, I mean, that's why they burn the Rambam. Um, was because he, man, he, makes, he does away with Ganeiden and Gehenim, which are pretty, for some people, central concepts in Yiddishkeit. So the Ramah feels you go to Olam Abba, then Mashiach comes, you come back to life, you die again, and go back to Olam Abba. What's the whole purpose? You were in Olam Abba, come back to life, die again, go back to Olam Abba. So we could have a whole sheet about what the purpose of Tchia Samesim is for the Ramah. There's two designations, but what's the distinction? We don't know. There's nothing we know. We're just calling it two different things, even though we, we don't know what the content is. Obviously, we have no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We try not to think too much about these things. The Rambam cautions us from investing too much time wondering what, what will be uh, backwards. But that the Rav Harishonim side with the Ramban, and again, that's why there was a, a lot of frustration with the Rambam that he omitted these concepts. But they believe first Gan Eden and Gehenna. Then everyone seems to make it to Gan Eden, and then. Anyway, so the many, some, Pharisees presume that this was a fear that they were coming back to that original Yomadin, they were going to reopen his case. After Ikla Basar, or maybe even after Yudbeis Kaidish, there isn't that same concern. However, the Nadi Yehuda's own son, the Shivas Tzion, um, disagrees with his father. And he says, what are you talking about? It's not the first Yom Adin, it's the second Yom Adin. Meaning that after the person is buried, it might even have to be after 12 months, maybe even after Iko Habasar, the person is already only a skeleton, he's not afraid that they're going to reopen his case from the first Yom Adin, that's over. But the person is afraid of, no, Moshiach came, and there's going to be a Tchiyas HaMesim, and now I'm going to be subjected to a second Yom Adin. And he's not sure what his, uh, you know, what his determination, what determination we've made at that point. And that's what the fear is. And therefore, the Shiva Sion argues that this prohibition of moving Mason, um, other than in the circumstances we described where it's permitted, um, remains intact, even after the person is already only a skeleton. And he has a raya from the Yushalmi, Yisrael Tzmeid Khan, which said, Ein mefanen es hameis, the whole source for this, Yisrael, Ein mefanen es hameis, ve'es hatzomos. You can't move a mace and you can't move bones. It's clearly talking about bones, and the fear, therefore, is for the second Yom Adin, not for the first Yom Adin. And nonetheless, that said, despite his objections, many poets can do continue to cite the Neid Yehuda as a psar, at least a sniff lahakel. So if a person is moving a body, it's always best to do it at least after 12 months. Some say after Ikla Basar. How long does Ikla Basar take? I tried to research it. It's impossible to figure out because it depends on the climate and the conditions and the soil content and all the different things that are present. It could take anywhere from a few years to decades for the body to completely decompose and turn into a skeleton. But either way, after 12 months, certainly, um, but even maybe after Ikla Basar, the, the severity of this prohibition is somewhat, uh, somewhat mitigated. Okay, so that's the main problem is Bilbo the Mace is a confusion of the Mace and he's afraid that there's going to be another Yom Adin, which Yom Adin specifically is uh, seems to be some su- subject to somewhat machlekes. The Gemara though introduces in Masechus Boba Basar another um, issue that's involved, and that is Nivo Hames. The Gemara there talks about a certain financial transaction that took place. Um, someone sold the property to someone else. That person claimed the rights to the property. The family claims though at the time that the person sold you the property, they were cut on and then they died. And we have no way of verifying, you know, whether he was a gadol or a katan at the time that the sale was made. So the buyer claims the person was a gadol when he sold it to me. The family claims, who owns the property, they know the person who sold you the property was a katan and then they died. So they asked the Rekiva, can we open up 
the kever, can we, you know, let's go and examine. Was the person, uh, you know, was the person a, a gadol? Let's check for simanim. I assume that the flesh was still intact. Let's check for simanim and find that if the person was a gadol or a katan at the time that the sale was made. So the Gemara says, Rabbi Kiva did not allow them to do that. The second line of You're not allowed to engage in nivul hamais. It's a disgrace to the mace, which is a problem of ahafta the reyacha kamoicha. The Gemara says, commenting on that positive ahafta reyacha kamoicha, bror loy misa yafe. You should choose for your friend, just like you would want for yourself. Choose for your friend a misa yafe, and don't disgrace him after the body is already, and if the person already passed away. So the prohibition of nivul hamais is a function extension of ahafta reyacha kamoicha, and this is a violation of nivul hamais. The, um, and that only, only applies um, um, when the flesh is still intact, even if it's just at some ways, um, I'm sorry, yeah. The rush over here, is, uh, oh no, even, yeah. The rush over here implies that that's only while the flesh is still intact. Over here, Oishit Beis, the rush comments, There's uh, some sort of a problem moving the mace from place to place, but at least prior to Ikulabasa because of of Nivo uh, Hames. It sounds like after Tatamas, you don't have to be as concerned, but prior to that, there would be a problem of uh, of Nivo Hames, huh? For medical reasons and Right, so for some, so for some just, there are always sometimes justifications to delay the burial or postpone the burial even indefinitely. Let's say because even though there is Nivo Ames involved, there is also Halonas Ames, right? If you're going to exhume the body, you fulfill the mitzvah of Kura by burying the body. When you exhume the body, you undo the mitzvah of Kura, right? And you, take, you, re, you regress. And now you have an obligation to rebury the body by virtue of the mitzvah of Kikabartik Brenner by Yomahu and Kozman that you don't. You're, you know, you're, you're being mavat the mitzvah and violating Halonas Hames. There are certain circumstances where that can be waived, such as Pikuach Nefesh. You're going to save somebody's life by learning something from an autopsy. But again, or maybe even learning medicine. We discussed in the past whether or not you could delay the burial for, uh, to, so people can learn about medicine and things like that. We don't allow it there, but even in autopsies there, it's you know, pretty restricted in when we would allow it, but, but there are, could be circumstances which would allow it. So the Pisgah Tshuva actually discusses whether or not you could exhume the body um, the Pisgah Tshuva on the Shulchan Aruch quotes this Gemara Masechlis Bobabasa that you cannot exhume a body just to check for some sort of financial dispute and the Pisgah Tshuva there discusses can you exhume a body to check whether or not this was a man a husband of a wife in order to be mad to her to remarry so even in the case of an Aguna Pisgah Tshuva goes back and forth whether or not we could exhume the body to check his identity whether this is the husband of the wife it seems, you know, the Pesach concludes, it seems to me to be correctly, that you can, right? Because Yushami writes to myself, the Shabbos, the case of Aguna, is like a tantamount to a Sarkonis Nefoshis, Shabbos, in order to be Matar and Aguna, the Yushami says. So certainly, you know, it should be sufficient grounds as well to exhume the body and violate Nivo Amaze. But, you know, that's another concern that we have in exhuming the body is also not only because of Bilbo, not only because we be confused that, you know, afraid of Yamadin is arriving, but because of Nivo Hames and there's some sort of Bizayon, at least, you know, prior to Iko Abasar, well, there's still flesh, there's some sort of Bizayon or Nivo Hames that's involved. In the Chuvas of the Chacham Tzvi, he argues that that's only if the person is not buried in an Oren. If they're buried in an Oren, so then you don't have, to, you don't have this uh, same, uh, necessarily this same uh, concern because... You know, you're just moving a box from place to place. So he suggests that's why the Shulchan Aruch, if you know, looking back at the discussion of moving mason from one place to another place, this interment and reinterment doesn't bring up the issue of Nivo Hamez, doesn't bring up the Zion. The only reason the Shach cites is because of Bilbo. Why don't they bring up this issue of Nivo Hamez? Shulchan Aruch cites it elsewhere. The answer is, says the Chacham Tzvi, because perhaps we're talking about a case where the person is buried in an Aaron. So if you know you're going to have to move a person from place to place, it's always preferable to bury them in an Aaron. You don't have the same issue of Nivo Hamez and Bizayin of the Mace. Uh, it's only if a person is buried outside of an Aaron, huh? That's a reason for the Minag and Chutzlats? No, I don't think so. No, 
No, what's, I don't think what's so. What's the issue of casket, no casket? Like, how is this in the note? What's... We've discussed in the past whether it's better to be buried in an Aron or it's a problem to be buried in an Aron, a wood Aron, a metal Aron. We discussed in the previous year at some point. But uh, it's because it's supposed to be buried in the ground. So the question is, the Aron a hepsic? Not a hepsic, maybe the Aron is itself the ground that's made out of stone. I think we discussed metal. Metal comes from stone. We discussed in the past. We discussed burying Aron to Israel. No, no. So the Chacham, that's the Chacham Tzvi suggestion. He says that maybe they were buried in Aaron. So Chacham Tzvi says if they weren't buried in Aaron, you have a second reason. So then the, we, you know, we're right to back to the problems. Okay, so why didn't the Shulchan Aruch bring it up? Presumably they weren't burying in Aaron. He said, Chotzar Tzvi, a common custom buried in Aaron. Uh, and even here, the chassidim don't, uh, you know, we won't talk about it. But, uh, but, but, but there, they weren't burying in our rightness. So why didn't the Shulchan Aruch mention it? So Ramesh has a great, Ramesh has a great shot. Ramesh addresses this in the Igor. Ramesh actually in more than one place. Ramesh has lots of chuvas about moving mesim. But he addresses this problem. Why didn't the Shulchan Aruch bring up nivul amesim b'zayin amesim? Ramesh says, because all of the situations that we're, we're going to allow it is for the covet of the nifter. We're going to delay a burial uh, all the time in order to increase the coverage the person will have at the time of the kfur. So the fam- more family members could come, so more people could be present. Obviously, within reason, we can delay a kfur for those reasons. Why? Because even though there's nivua mace involved, there's a certain disgrace that the mace isn't being buried right away. There's that counterbalance of the fact that there's more covered involved uh, by having more people there, doing it at a time that's convenient, so uh, you know, other people can participate. That increases the cover of the nifta. So Ramayusha says, all of the situations, that's inherent, that's baked into the cake of Simashin Samakimo, back in say of moving a mace from place to place, is that, of course, this is going to increase covered mace. That alone is not sufficient grounds to allow it, right? Even from Bazui to Mechubad, we wouldn't move, we wouldn't exhume a body and the bury it somewhere else. It's because of the secondary reason of Bilbo, uh, you know, it's confusing for the mace and it's kosher because he's afraid that there's a Yom Adin. But of course, Ramayusha said, the very premise of that whole Sifin Shulchan Aruch is that it is for his, you know, greater honor. And if that's the case, why bring up Nivu Ames? Nivu Ames and Halonis Ames are always going to be waived when there is a concern of cover that's involved. But for that reason, Ramesha claims, let's say you're going to move a mace based on one of the justifications that we had, like the person asked to be buried somewhere else, but there's no increased cover in doing so. Ramesha's case was a woman had a plot that was next to the wall of the Beis forest, but she didn't want to be buried next to the edge. She didn't want to be buried at the edge. I'm not a person who stands on the side. She wanted to be buried mitten, you know, in the middle of the, with everybody else. So she said, if another burial plot opens up or her children are able to procure one, to move her. Now, normally, if a person asks to be buried somewhere else, you move them. So Ramesha says, you could have justified moving her. But Ramesha claims, we only do that because presumably the person asks to be buried somewhere else because there's some greater cover that's involved, you know, for them. Here, Ramesha claims it's a Narishkite. He said there's nothing wrong with being buried at the edge of a cemetery. There's absolutely no myra to being buried in the middle of the cemetery versus being buried at the edge of the cemetery. So Ramesha says the only time you follow a tzivoy is if it has a legitimate cause, not if it's silly or stupid. So Ramesha says over here, this is not a legitimate reason, and Ramesha would not allow the family to move the mace from the edge of the cemetery, the beginning of the cemetery, because of Nivula mace. Even though they were mitzavah to do so, it, it doesn't matter, because the very premise of the whole discussion is that there's some sort of additional cover that can be introduced. Okay, so we mentioned that there are certain circumstances. And this can't be allowed. Normally, we try not to engage in moving mason, nivula mace, some sort of bizayon. Um, there's, there's a confusion, there's kosher the mace because he's afraid there's another Yom Adin that's arriving. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously, if it's for his cover, there's certain circumstances where um, it can be allowed. Um, we discussed if the person is buried Allah tonight, if they're buried on condition that they're going to be moved. So then the person, you know, hears that condition being made at the time they're being buried, and they're not necessarily concerned when the mace is disturbed that there's another Yom Adin that's arriving. This was common. During Corona, it was difficult to get Mason to Eretz Yisrael. Um, so they had to bury lots of Mason here, a la Tanai, that they were going to be moved later on. 
and, uh, and that was done uh, routinely after the restrictions were lifted to move to move Mason. There are other times also, sometimes the grave diggers go on strike, sometimes the plane workers go on strike. That happened in the 60s. It was a big deal. The grave diggers went on strike in the United States. Then in New York, you weren't able to bury Mason because the grave diggers were on strike. So a lot of times you weren't able to bury in the cemetery uh, where you had a plot. So you had to bury them in a temporary plot and mind to move them to a more permanent plot. So it happens. It happens. Huh? Oh, even within the 12 months. But always better to wait after 12 months, right? It's, that's where a lot of times throws into these discussions, always better to wait till after 12 months. Because then according to Ferris Israel, according to the Naid Behudi, you have an additional sniffle But yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Um, when, when they do move the body in these kinds of situations, there are hilchas avelos that apply. This is quoted in Shulchan Aruch, at the time of Likarat Samar, says avelos, even the person's already done with Shiva, it reawakens. Usually, Avelos begins after the Kfura. Here, it's actually the reverse. Avelos begins when they exhume the body. It lasts just for that one day, even if it takes a few days to get the body to its final destination. Avelos only lasts for that one day. And there's Kriya and you know, Avelos Shiva that you know, restarts again for all of the Kravim. Even a Kayan would be allowed to be Rimatami to his mace in order to do Likarat Right, so typically the Pisgah Tshuva quotes the name of some Sefer. There's no mitzvah to tell the family. If the family doesn't know, they don't have to sit Shiva later on. So the custom is when they're moving Mesim, you tell the, the Hever Kadisha, please move my mace at your discretion. And they let you know, they don't tell you what date it's happening. After it's done already, they tell the family now the mace is already there and then there's no Shiva, no Kriya that's, uh, that's required. But anyway, well, you know, this was routinely done. They would move the Mesim after it was buried al Atanai. Or if the person was Mitzavah to be moved from place to place, you know, or to be buried somewhere else and they buried him mistakenly in the place where he died and they didn't know about the Tzivoy, so then you can move them. Or Moshe claims, because that's like a burial al Atanai. You didn't realize this wasn't where the person was supposed to be buried. The person knows this isn't where they're supposed to be buried. They were supposed to be buried somewhere else. So that's Kigu, you buried them Allah tonight. This was a big issue at the time of the passing of Mordechai Benet. Mordechai Benet was one of the G'dayla Yolam prior to the time of the Sam Sefer. Um, and he was the Rav in Kenigsberg, but he died in Karlsbad, which I think are two areas of Germany, if I'm not mistaken. And um, they wanted to move him, but it became a huge deal to move one of the G'dayla Yolam, and all the Paiskim got involved. There's some Sefer, there's about it. In the end of the day, they allowed him because he asked to be buried within the Beis of his, the Beis of his community, and there was going to be greater cover that was involved for him being buried together with his community, and therefore uh, most of the Paiskim, uh, all of the Paiskim at the time, did allow it. Or let's say um, there was an it, it, interesting case of Ravadia has. I don't know what the requirements are to be buried in Har Herzl, but there was a uh, veteran who was killed in a terrorist attack and was buried in Har Menuchas. And the mother said at the time that she's going to be buried in Har Menuchas, Halavai, at some point we can move the body to Har Herzl. And then the opportunity opened up, I don't know the politics that are involved in getting buried in Har Herzl, which is the military cemetery of the, of the, of the Israeli army. And the opportunity opened up to move him. And uh, Rabbi Vajra felt that was like a tzivoy, or that was like you know, Nick Barrow tonight, and they were entitled to move the body. Obviously, if you're moving the body towards Israel, that's another reason that it can be justified. Um, and this was a, usually, we had a shiro about this being buried in Eretz Israel. And at that time, we discussed also the issue of Moses Montefiore. Moses Montefiore, one of the great philanthropists, the great supporter of Eretz Israel. So many things are named after him, but the whole Yemin Moshe um, neighborhood of Yushalayim was named after Moses Montefiore. And there was a discussion in the last hundred years that, uh, that maybe now that uh, you know, Moses Montefiore contributed so much to Eretz Israel, it would be proper. proper. He's buried in the UK in some 
you know, a whole uh, situation over there, a whole basic farce, you know, that's just for him and his family, and I think other people are buried there now too, in Ramsgate or something. But there was a discussion about, his wife is there and everything, there was a discussion about moving him to Eretz Yisrael. So Bavadya felt, and then Yabiyah, that we should move him to Eretz Yisrael. You can move bodies to Eretz Yisrael. Even if the person never asked to be moved to Eretz Yisrael, you can move him to Eretz Yisrael. The Pischei Tshuva, back in Isaiah, quotes him the Tshuva, the Maobach. Even if you never asked to be moved to Eretz Yisrael, you can move the body to Eretz Yisrael without, you know, without asking him. You can't ask him anymore, he's not here. Unless he was mitzvah them not to move him to Eretz Yisrael. So, and uh, Moses Maltifer never gave a tzivoy not to be moved to Eretz Yisrael, so Ramayi said we should move him. Ramayi disagrees. It's fascinating. Ramayi usually is fantastic. Ramayi usually gives you know reasons for his psukim, which is so great with Ramayi. That's why if you want to disagree, you can disagree. But Ramayi gives you his reasons. Here Ramayi says I'm not going to give you a reason for why we shouldn't move Moses Maltifer because if I give you a reason, you're going to disagree with me, or you think you can dinzach. You know, there's a thread. I can start pulling the thread, and maybe there's room to negotiate. Ramayi says here, I'm not going to give you a reason. It should not be done. But then Ramayi gives you a little hint of a reason. <laughs> Ramayi says because first of all, Ramayi was not in favor of moving bodies. Uh, you know that, that everyone had to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. He felt it's a mile for certain chassidim and tzaddikim who want to do it, but it wasn't necessarily a requirement or something we should encourage the whole tzibur to do. And Ramayi says if you're going to move, start moving tzaddikim to Eretz Yisrael, why are you starting with Moses Mount if you're all of the gedolim in Europe are going to have tainas? Why did you start with him instead of starting? <laughs> with us. It's a great time. Ramayusha. Ramayusha says that they should not move Moses Mount and I don't believe that they moved him. If it's to a cover office also, so then you can move the body, as Yaakov Vinu says, Vishakhafti in my voice. There is a dispute that Ramayusha cites what is considered to be a cover office. Is it any family member or is it only if a person is being buried with his parents? Ramayusha thinks it's only if a person is being buried with his parents, but then he quotes there from the Orsameh, the end of Hukhsavegos, that disagrees. Why should it only be if you're being buried with your parents? I mean, that's what Kever Ovis is, which is but they're a little bit more liberal, that even if you're being buried in a plot, that's a family plot, together with other family members, the Arsameach is willing to be Mako, and that's, I think, the pretty common custom. You can be moved to be buried, even if it's not specifically with your parents. Ramayusha, though, has a great tomb over here, Oisid Gimel, that, let's say a person just wants to be moved to be buried, not in Kever Ovis, meaning that there are other farm of his family around, but so his children should be able to visit him. He's buried over here, and his children no longer live over here. The children moved over there, and he wants them to be able to visit him. Is that now? If the children move to Eretz Israel, then you can move the body. You're moving the body to Eretz Israel. It could always be done. Um, but what, you know, what? What if the family moved from New York to Pittsburgh and they want to move the body with them to Pittsburgh so they should be able to visit? So Moshe says that's not a justification to move the body. He says there's no obligation to visit the Beisak Forest. He says people think that there's Kibbutz Aviyim involved, but he says he doesn't think there's an obligation to do it, and therefore it's not a justification to move the body. He says that Ria Kadosh Mekubalim were against visiting a Beisalim. Anyway, so Ramesh says, even though people do do it because they think it is a fulfillment of the Kibbutz Aviyim, that's not a justification necessarily to move the body. One other situation, uh, the Sri Deyesh disagrees, I think, but one other situation which can't be allowed is if it's a, a grave that's not Mishtamer, it's not guarded. So Ramesh actually has a tshuva about a whole Beisach forest. It's not only one grave. If a whole Beisach forest is not guarded, it is in danger of being overrun or disgraced, then you can move the whole Beisach forest. But Ramesh has a tshuva about a Beisach forest in New Orleans. Well, I think the Jewish community, I don't know about the geography, you know, the, the history of new, the Jewish community of New Orleans, but they were apparently in one part of the community, they moved to somewhere else, and it was taken over by those who were probably not going to be as careful with the Jewish cemetery, and they were throwing garbage and trash on the cemetery. So Moshe was mad to them to move the entire cemetery from one neighborhood to another neighborhood because they weren't able to protect it properly. The Chazanish disagrees, though, because if you look at the language of Shulchan Aruch, Shulchan Aruch says that you're not able to protect it and we're afraid, maybe the non-Jews will exhume the body. 
and tamper with the body. But if they're just throwing garbage on top, maybe that's not a good enough justification to move the body. Or maybe one could argue if they're throwing garbage on top today, tomorrow, you know, they'll probably open up the, the forest. So, so, so maybe there is somewhat of a justification. Okay, so we mentioned numerous. Normally, we try not to move bodies for Nivu Ames because there's, you know, it's difficult for the maze to think another Yom Adin is coming. Uh, but there are certain circumstances where it can be allowed if it's Kever Ovis, if it's Terra Tisrael, if a condition is made, or the person made a tzavah, they want to be buried somewhere else, and mistakenly they were buried not in that, uh, in that location. Or it's a grave, which is not mishtamer, so then it can be allowed. There is one other very contentious issue in Eretz Yisrael, which is moving mason that are in the public domain, or in an area which is, uh, which is infringing upon a kind of public accommodation. So can you move graves there? This is one of the most contentious and explosive issues in Eretz Yisrael today, which is, uh, it drives a huge wedge between the more secular parts of Eretz Yisrael and then the community and more Haredish side. You see protests all the time that they found that Beisak Forest and uh, everyone's protesting. What are they protesting about? So the whole issue is about a Gemara Masech the Sanhedrin. The Gemara says, if you have a kever at the end of the first line, kever hamazikas harabim, a kever that is damaging the rabim, so then it can be moved. Now, what does it mean it's damaging the rabbim? What it, Rashi there explains, it means that it's sitting next to the road and it's creating tumah for everybody who drives past the road. They're all becoming tameh, which is a tremendous nuisance, and for kahanim, a huge iser. We actually have this in Passaic, all these tons of cemeteries there, because it was chutz at the time that they built those cemeteries, and now all of a sudden the Jewish community sprouted around it. So it's literally around Mason. But the, many of the main streets... You have to drive through cemeteries in order to get to the community off the highway. And there are trees that hung, hang over the cemetery and then go over the road, too. Maybe we'll have a shit one time about the Jewish trees. Cemeteries? Some Jewish, some non-Jewish, but, but we try not to have... Yeah, it's a when discussion a about camp, non-Jews. When I was at camp as a kid, the road went over Goyish Cemetery with the trees. I asked Rebecca Kamenetsky that... Told me it's okay. It's okay because it's going. It's, it's, a, it's a big discussion. Well, then maybe trees. we should have a share about it. Anyway, but Broyer Cemetery is right there. It's in Passaic. So there's a tree that, that over, overtakes it. So it was one Askin, very nice, a coin. He paid to have the trees all trimmed back from the main roads. So there isn't the same tree that hangs over the cemeteries that hangs over the road, but he did it one time. Trees have a habit of growing back. So it comes back. So if you drive to Passaic or Baron, you have to be careful where you drive. There's certain streets where you have to be careful not to drive. So it's, it's literally Mazaka Sarabim. So that was the situation. So the Gemara there was discussing that you're allowed to move the kever. So Shochanar quotes this kever. Amazik Sarabim, going through Samach It's next to the path. You're allowed um, to move it. Now that was only in order to prevent people from becoming tummy. However, Rabbi Kiva Eger has a tshuva. He doesn't tell you what it's about, but it's a tshuva to the Nesivis about moving not only one kever but an entire Beisach forest from one place to another place because there was some sort of inconvenience in having the cemetery here. And I don't mean it was, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, uh, just, uh, you know, an inconvenience. It sounds like there was some sort of great difficulty in having the cemetery here and he permitted them to move it. And he cites there a tshuva, which is quoted in the Pisgah Tshuva, about a shul that was expanding or that fell down and they were rebuilding part of it. And they found, as they were excavating, they found bones underneath. And the Pisgah Tshuva there allows them to move the bones in order to expand the shul. Because that's like a kever hamazik esharabim. So if a kever is in the way of some sort of public accommodation, it can be moved. The question, that's clear. That's beyond dispute. The question, though, is how serious of an issue is this? Meaning what kind of concern justifies moving forest? And how much money has to be expended, if any, to avoid it?
So, in the Trubas of the Chavaz bin Yaman, the Chavaz bin Yaman was a Shoal Yisraeli, I think he was a Rosh Hashiv in Merkaz Arav, tremendous Tamachachim, tremendous Trubas in the Chavaz bin Yaman. He argues that it should be comparable to Gemara Baba Basra about moving fruit trees. Basik tells us, right, when you capture, a, again, capture a town, you're not allowed to cut down the trees. It's an Isra of Baltashas to cut down a fruit tree. Very uh, mystical Indian, too, not to cut down trees. But yet, the Gemara says in Baba Basra, if, if it's being Mazik the Rabbim, so then you can cut down the tree. What's considered to be Mazik Harabim, says Rashi, eh, it's destroying the, the view. It's destroying the beauty, the landscape of the city. So then you could cut down a fruit tree. So Chavez bin Yamin, Rosh Yisraeli, argues, well, if it's disturbing the beauty of the city, so then you could cut down the fruit tree. So too, if it's disturbing the beauty of the town, you could reroute the roads. Uh, you, know, you, could re- you could move the kvarm in order not to have to reroute the roads. So he claims it's somewhat of a... You know, uh, any kind of concern at all seems to be a justification to move a basic forest. Every time they build a road. That's exactly what we're talking about, Marty. Exactly. So according to the Chavez bin Yaman, move the Kvarim. Yeah, it's in the way. Okay, move it. Others are not as, uh, are not as cavalier. Why not? Because there's a comment of the Shilte Giborim. If you look over here in the Rambam, the Rambam discusses that a kever, a mace is Asabana, and a kever on top of the mace is Asabana. Ground, dirt, can never be Asabana. Ground, you can't ask the dirt ba'ana. So the ground of a base hakvaris cannot be also ba'ana. But yet at the same time, the Rambam writes, base hakvaris asurim ba'ana. You have to be careful in the way you conduct yourself in a base hakvaris. Ketzad, ain't oichlim ben, you can't eat in a base hakvaris. Ain't shaisim ben, you can't drink there. Ain't oichlim melacha, you can't do any melacha there. You have to be careful not to engage in kalos reish in a base hakvaris. Why? Why do you have to be careful not to engage in kalos reish in a base hakvaris? So the Shilte Giborim, one of the Rishonim, at the end of the period of the Rishonim, but one of the Rishonim nonetheless argues that it sounds like for the Rambam, this is a huge Chiddush, but that a cemetery has the status of a Beis HaKnesses. Just like a communal gathering place for Tefillah is a Mikdash Miat and has certain Kedusha, they can engage in Kalos Reish and Eshul, it sounds like for the Rambam, that there's this same kind of, if you hear people talk about a Beisach forest as like a, a Kedusha, there's a holiness that exists in cemetery, that the Shilta Gibarim claims is similar to a Beisach Knesset and has all of the rights and privileges of a Beisach Knesset. And just like you wouldn't move a Beisach Knesset just because it's in the way of a road, and you certainly can't, you know, all the regulations and restrictions you have on selling a shul and moving a shul, the same regulations should apply to moving a Beisach forest. The Chazanish disagrees. He says you can't be Machadish these things, you know, from nowhere. Where, where do you get this from? That 10 Jews are buried together? That's like 10 Jews that are coming to Davin together. Ten Jews daven together, it's a Beis HaKnesses, it's a certain Kedusha, ten Jews, maybe because they're all davening to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I, I don't know where this would come from, but the Shilta Kibarim kind of makes up this Kiddush, but uh, Chazanish thinks it's a, it's a little bit too far, but there are those that don't treat it as cavalierly as of Shaul Yisraeli, that it's something we should take with a little bit more Kavid Rosh. So it's not something we should do, you know, just willy-nilly. So, okay, but HaKesef Yana Sakol, money runs everything. So you, for a certain amount of money, you could just reroute the road. You could build a building, like they have buildings over here, built over the air rights of someone else, have a dangling building over the Beisach Forest, and don't touch, you know, the, the Beisach Forest, and, and instead of moving it. Yeah, you could do whatever. You know, people today are ingenious in the way they can construct things. I'm sure you could construct things that Tuma wouldn't be an issue. You could construct yeah, it with multiple yeah. levels. Yeah, you could just construct it at many different levels or reroute Kvishesh. Why does Kvishesh have to go straight from the south to the north? Reroute it so it'll take a little detour. Oh, build it over, you can do things. With money, anything is possible. How much money has to be expended? So there's a true over here in the Chuma Sadeshin that was asked that there was a, those, uh, it was a ruler that had allowed the animals in town to graze on the Jewish cemetery. We could pay them, though, to graze somewhere else, buy a field, and the animals will graze somewhere else. So Chuma Sadeshin says you have to spend a little bit of money to try and get them not to graze over the Beisach Forest, but not an enormous amount of money that will prevent you from accomplishing other communal tasks and agenda items. 
So a little bit of money, not too much money. So does that same you know, thing apply over here as well? So there's a truth in the Shiva Sion. Again, the Shiva Sion was the son of the Nebuchadnezzar Yehuda about where they wanted to make a road over a, base, a Jewish base like forest. So the Shiva Sion says the only time the Truma Sadesh said you don't have to spend an enormous amount of money was when it was animals grazing in the Beisach forest. Because they're here today, tomorrow they might graze somewhere else. It's not a permanent problem. And even so, it's animals coming and going, what's the great design necessarily? But to make a road that goes over the Beisach forest, that's going to be permanent. For that, we have to spend a lot of money, an enormous amount of money. And if we can't raise the money, then we can move the forest. But not before that. We have to raise, try and raise as much money as we can rather than move the chorus. And if you, you can't do it, so then, then you have the right to move them. But you have to initially perhaps spend a lot of money. The, the, Rav Cook has a truva though. He argues, he says, why is it my problem that others are being Mavaza Mason? It's not my problem. Why do I have, you want to be Mavaza Mason? It's wrong to do it. You want to build a road over a cemetery? Why is that my problem? Why is that community's problem that one individual wants to be Mavaza Mason or that the Medina wants to be Mavaza Mason? What does that necessarily have to do with me? It's an interesting tshuva. So some Sefer discusses the very same issue. Some Sefer says it's a Dover Poshet, Kebebe Kukli says it's obvious to Kobardas that we have to do whatever we can to protect the Mason, even if it's not me who's being Mavaza the Mason. At the same time, the some Sefer there was talking about, um, I think you had a Beisach forest that wasn't able to be protected. How much money do we have to invest in protecting the Beisach forest? It happens in Harazesim, it happens all the time in the, in the, in the cemeteries and throughout Europe. That we have to spend money, says some Cypher, in order to invest in protecting the base like forest. It shouldn't be disgraced, but not in a tremendous amount of money. He goes with the Chuma Sadesh and spend uh, uh, you know, some money, not something that's crippling amount of money that in, in a prohibits us, inhibits us from being able to accomplish other community, you know, com- communal agenda items. If you can't, you know, if it becomes too expensive, then at that point you would have the entitled to move the base item. But you should try and spend, you know, some money, but not necessarily uh, too much money that will become will become crippling. But Gomaisa is this is one of the you know the issues that go to the heart of what Eretz Yisrael is all about. Eretz Yisrael is the Holy Land, and that's one of the, you know, the main reason people go and visit there is to see all these historical sites and all of the you know, Kedusha and the Chloris that, that are there. At the same time, it's a startup nation. We want it to be productive. We want it to be, you know, to be able to move us into the future. Eretz Yisrael constantly is at the crossroads of these two agenda items of becoming new and, and innovative and a place that people want to live at the same time preserving all of the different things that you know, existed in the past. And it's an issue that has to be negotiated.